Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 329 with Dusty Staub. I think you'll be enriched by Dusty's perspective on courage, where it's missing, how to find it, how to deploy it effectively for tremendous results. So you'll learn one, the three biggest lacks of courage in the workplace, two, the problem with being nice, and three, how to find and liberate others' purpose, passion, and power. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F329. Now here's Dusty's story. Robert Dusty Staub has worked for over 30 years with executives, families, and communities, as well as with private and public companies. He's trained and coached executives and teams into creating high-performance outcomes. Dusty has been a pioneer in the process of creating systemic accountability by aligning leadership and group behaviors with strategy to produce bottom-line results. Thanks to Dusty for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Dusty. Dusty, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, it's my pleasure. Well, could you give us first and foremost an orientation to this Dusty nickname? Where did it come from and, and how is it stuck? Well, I, my father was Robert Earl Staub, and he was a, uh, had a full scholarship to Notre Dame playing football in 1942 out of Canton High School. He didn't go. He went and fought in World War II, and his nickname in high school was Blood and Gut Staub, and uh, working as a paratrooper for... For 26 years in the military, he became even tougher. When I was born, there was only one Bob Staub, and that was him. But I was named Robert Earl Staub II. And Staub's a German word that means dust. So when I was one day old, my dad didn't want me to be called Little Bobby. Mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> he nicknamed me Dusty. So I've, uh, I've been known by uh, Dusty, except by the nuns in parochial school who refused because there's no St. Dusty. When, mm. when they call me Robert, I wouldn't respond. And I've had more than one or two rulers cracked across my knuckles over the years. <laughs> oh, gracious. You know, and I'm wondering, surely there's a saint somewhere that, uh, <laughs> you know, of of the, the dusty roads or travels or hospitality for cleaning people's feet. I don't know. Some way, I, I wonder. But uh, who knows? They may or may not have been receptive to your counter offer uh, at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. But I'm also curious here. So, did your dad want you to have the family name, but also differentiation in the household? Is that he's trying to have his cake and eat it too? Yes, he, he did. He, he, he named me after himself and he didn't like junior either. So he made it the second because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, he didn't like junior and he wanted me to be different than he was. And unfortunately for both of us, I was very different. He and I had a, uh, like two rams uh, crashing hits <laughs> together for the first 28 years of my life until I had a uh, an awakening and, uh, and transformed the relationship by changing the way I dealt with him. Well, that's intriguing. Does this have to do with courage or is this a whole other area of expertise of yours? Well, no, that's actually where I was working at the VA hospital. Where, uh, I did a TEDx talk on this uh, called Developing the Cardiovascular System of Your Soul. And I was working with a veteran and his family as this uh, veteran was declining. And I worked with him for about six weeks. And I was at his bedside when he took his last breath. Uh, I was providing a psychological consult. And when he died, I realized that that was my father in that bed, because he was the same age, that I could not have said to that man what the daughter said to her father. 
And I realized at some point my dad was going to die or I was going to die. And we were in a hellish position with each other. And so that's where the acts of courage were born, the courage to look in the mirror and see the way I was acting, the courage to dream of a different way of being, the courage to be confronted by my father, and the courage to confront myself, and and the courage to be more vulnerable and open, etc. So seven different acts of courage were required for me to transform myself. And in the nine months of work, I was free. And then two years later, my father changed and became the dad I always wanted. Somehow in changing myself and my way of relating to him, it changed his way of responding and relating to me. It's not funny when you think about system dynamics, but it was a revelation to me at the time. Well, that's beautiful and, and powerful. And so, so we're here in courage, being transformational in personal relationships. I'd also like to hear how this is powerful in the work environment. Well, yeah, because most of my work in the past 35 years has been in corporations, for-profit, not-for-profit, across all of segments of uh, U.S. industry. And I keep seeing in organizations where a lack of courage uh, at senior leadership levels, uh, as well as down through the ranks, but speaking of senior leaders, where it leads to problems. So two of the biggest lacks of courage occurs most often in corporate America is a lack of the courage to be confronted, number one. So people get fancy, they shut people down. And, uh, you know, when somebody comes to give you bad feedback or uh, give you criticism, Pete, in your organization, they're inviting you to join a conversation that's been going on for a while. And if if you shut them down, they just go back underground behind your back and it redoubles. And then you get blindsided, which is never good. And then uh, the second uh, lack of courage is the courage to confront, to tell truth to power, to a colleague, to to a powerful subordinate, to to a superior. And so people don't tell their truths. People don't understand what's going on because they lack the courage to be confronted. And there's a lot of issues there. Those are the two big ones. And I guess the third one I see is often a lack of the courage to be vulnerable, to be open, to admit I don't know, to raise my hand and say I need help. And those three acts of courage are, are really critical if you want to be a good leader and if you want to have a sustainable performance in your organization. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, that's clear. And, and that's, that's big. And I love that, that perspective in terms of, you know, it's the conversations going on underground and then you're sort of being invited to participate in it is what's really going on there, which is a beautiful reframe in terms of, you know, instead of being defensive to embrace it. And we had uh, Kim Scott, uh, who wrote the book Radical Candor on the show earlier, talk about how she sort of had an aha moment when she had to fire somebody and he was like, how come nobody ever told me this? And she's like, oh, yeah, we weren't doing him any favors at all, were we, by, by trying to be too nice and polite and, and, and dancing around the, the issue at hand that needed to be addressed. Yeah, and I, what I would say is people get addicted to being nice and being pleasant. And they're not protecting the other person. They're protecting themselves from the emotional reaction, from feeling like a bad guy or a bad gal. And when we don't give people honest, direct, feedback, corrective feedback, as well as encouragement, we really failed them. And being nice is definitely not nice. I, I live in the South and down in the South, mm-hmm. you know, in New York, if someone doesn't like you, it's a, a nice big F you. Uh, down, <laughs> in the South, down in the South, it's bless your little heart. <laughs> you add the little into the heart and that's an F you in the South. <laughs> and so it's, it's, uh, 
I do a lot of work internationally, and my, my German uh, clients tell me, they say, you know, Americans, you can't trust them. I said, they're not reliable. I said, what do you mean? Well, they say what they think you want to hear, and they will say yes when they haven't really committed, and then they don't follow through. And so I think that's, again, uh, we want to be pleasant. We want to be liked. We're saying yes, but we're not really thinking it through. And we're not saying, you know, I can't say yes to that. Here's why. Uh, let's talk it through further. So instead of going deeper or being more honest in our dialogue and conversations, we are polite and nice, and we therefore fail an individual, a team, an organization, and it really damages careers. It really damages performance. Well, so we're talking about courage a lot, and I'd love it if maybe you could share some of the the disguises or packaging or or lies or excuses or rationalizations we use when, when we're really just, frankly, we're not courageous. So that's really what's going on. It's like, we're really scared, but it, it gets dressed up or rationalized in some, in some prettier terms that we, we use to ourselves. Yeah, well, one, one of the biggest rationalizations, by the way, rationalize is a rational lie. Oh, tweet it. <laughs> <laughs> so we rationally lie to ourselves. And there are psychological mechanisms. I talk about this in my second book, The Seven Acts of Courage. I talk about the defensive mechanisms of denial, of projection, of blame, uh, of rationalization. So we rationalize. I don't want to hurt Dusty's feelings. I don't want to rock the boat. You know, things are okay. You know, I can work around this. Uh, We can just work around this person. This person's been with me a long time. Yeah, it's in over their head, but we can carry them. There's all kinds of rational lies that people tell themselves. They'll even say, you know, well, that person's just mad at me. That's not really true. We do 360 feedback, and we gather data from multiple sources, 8, 9, 10, 12 people around an individual. And people are shocked sometimes at the themes around the critical things they need to change. And it's because they've been hearing it from one or two people. But when they see it as a theme from five or six people all at once, it's inescapable. And then it hurts their feelings. And one of the things, Pete, I believe is that my father said this to me. (laughs) I came home from graduate school. My dad had uh, left the military and started his own business. And he said, son, these damn civilians. I said, dad, what the damn civilians do now? (laughs) And he said, son. If they were in the military, would shoot them. They don't tell you the truth. They talk behind your back. Uh, when you give them a chance to tell you what's going on, they won't tell you. And when you try to tell them, they get defensive. He said, they let their emotions run them. I said, well, Dad, you're calling that amateur. What's a professional? He says, son, a professional is somebody who does what's required and necessary, not what's most comfortable, habitual, or routine. And Pete, what I see in so many of the clients we work with and so much when I read the news people do what's habitual, what's routine, they do their personality. You know, integrity, doing the the right thing when things are easy, not integrity. Doing the right thing when it's hard, when it's painful, that's integrity. And we talk about a lack of integrity in corporate America, a lack of integrity in politics right now. Well, until people start showing the courage to be confronted, until people start having the courage to tell the truth without laying down judgments. I mean, I can tell the truth to somebody in a way where they thank me, or I can tell the truth in a way where the person feels judged, belittled, and put down. So when I say the courage to confront, it's the courage to confront with respect and compassion. Uh, when you get angry and you, and you think you're telling your truth, 
you're vomiting on somebody, you're dumping on somebody. And that's not respectful. That's not respectful confrontation. That's not the courage to confront. Okay. Got it. Well, so you lay out seven acts of courage progressively. So could you walk us through a little bit of sort of each one and how it looks in practice? Sure. And interrupt me if I, if I can't go on too long here. The first act of courage, which I discovered, was the courage to dream and to put forth the dream. I had a dream that I could have a better relationship with my father, that when I stood at his graveside, there would be no guilt, there would no be shame, there would be no resentment and anger, that I would be at peace with my dad. That was a dream, and that was not where we were. And it takes courage to put that dream out there because the world is full of cynics. We have internet trolls. You put a dream out there on the internet, you can have all kinds of people telling you you can't do it, why you can't do it, and what's wrong with you. But there's never been a statue or a tribute created for a critic. It's for the creators of the world. So the to dream and put the dream out there is the courage to say, I'd like this. You might fall flat on your face. I had the, the dream. I've had many dreams. And until I put it out there, until I begin to express it and tell other people what I want to create, it doesn't really become real. You can't keep it a secret. So that's a big one. Okay. And so when it comes to the courage to dream, you know, in, in a way, dreaming seems easy. It's like, hey, you're just sort of uh, thinking about something. But what, what kind of stops that from happening in the first place? Well, there are many people who tell themselves they can't have it. There's a wonderful book by Robert Fritz called The Path of Least Resistance, and he talks about the creative mindset. In there, he, he lays out stuff that I found to be very true, which is we want something, but we tell ourselves we can't have it. And so we listen to that voice and we give up on the dream. And so the, the dream is just a pipe dream. But when I say, so I'll give you an example. When I decided I wanted to change my relationship with my father. I'd always dreamed of a better relationship. I realized that I needed to tell my mom. I needed to tell my friends. I needed to tell my dad. I wanted to have a different kind of relationship with him. And I knew my dad was going to laugh at me and be critical. I knew that my mom would be sympathetic. I knew some of my friends would uh, were mad at their dads, would think I was just caving in. And some of them would be supportive. But when I put it together and said, I believe I can create a better relationship I don't expect him to change. He won't change one bit. What I will do is change how I respond and what I do. I'm going to stop being critical. I'm going to stop finding fault. I'm going to stop complaining about him. I'm going to stop yelling at him when he yells at me. I'm going to start uh, working on showing some appreciation for what he's been through. He went through two wars, World War II, Korea. He grew up in the Depression, et cetera, et cetera. So by beginning to express that dream and put it out there and make it concrete, until you make it more concrete and you give some, some scope to it and you begin to express it, it's just a pipe dream. And it takes courage to do that because there's a big part of us that says we can never do it. Okay, gotcha. And, and so then the second act is to the courage to see current reality. How's that play out? Yeah, and, and the reason I have that as the second act is you first need to know where you want to go and, and start to claim it. Then the second is you have to have the courage to see what's working for you and working against you. And so again, using my dad and my as an example, just sticking with that image, I had to have look in the mirror and see the nasty way I had of reacting to him. And I totally justified my behavior based on his behavior. And there's no justification for bad behavior. I don't care. The other person can engage in egregious behavior. My behavior is not tied to that. Otherwise, I say that I'm just a reactive machine they push this button, I react. They push that button, I react. 
And instead, my father was going to do what he was going to do, and I could choose how I was going to respond. And seeing the current reality is claiming my strengths, claiming my weaknesses, what's working for me, working against me, not having a pipe dream that somehow my dad's going to be different, but seeing the way it is and seeing how I'm interacting and what's problematic in the way I interact and seeing that, that current reality and claiming it. And some people uh, will not claim their strengths because then they'd have to do something with them. And some people lack the courage to claim their weaknesses. They, they gloss over them because then they would have to own up that there's something they're responsible for and they have to do different. So the courage to see current reality is sometimes the courage to see our strengths. And for some people, it's the courage to admit and see weaknesses or gaps. Gotcha. Okay. And so the next up, the courage to confront. How's that go? I'll put it this way. Imagine you have the courage to dream. That's your guiding star. That's what you're going after. The courage to current reality is the ground you stand on. If you don't know the ground you stand on, you're not going to be able to move. But to go from current reality to the dream requires five different acts of courage. And the first act is the courage to confront, the courage to, to speak your truth, to tell other people what you see, to tell other people what you like and don't like. It's finding your voice. And finding the power to express your voice without being judgmental or critical or negative. Just saying, hey, this is what I see. This is the reality I have. What do you see? So we, en- we engage in a dialogue rather than a one-way conversation. Okay. And then likewise, there's the courage to be confronted by the other. Yeah. You know, that's the, the fourth act of courage is the courage to be confronted. Some people will dish it out. There are people who have the courage to confront. Uh, I, right now, I think of um, our president <laughs> of the United States. He will put it out there. He doesn't do it nicely, but he puts it out there. But he lacks the courage to be confronted. And if you're not willing to hear confrontation or differences of opinion, it means you're going to create extra resistance. You're going to create more negativity. And you're going to guarantee you're going to get blindsided because people will just go underground with it uh, if you have a lot of power. Uh, or they lack the courage to continue to tell their truth. So the courage to be confronted means I don't want to be blindsided. I want to take the, it's like, you know, going crossing the street, big highway, busy highway, a thoroughfare in New York City, but putting blinders on that are about three feet out. You're going to get hurt or maybe killed. You want to take the blinders off. You want to have the courage to be confronted. You want to have the courage to, to let people tell you things, maybe not always in the nicest way, from that, at least you have more perspective and more information with which to work. And in this kind of conversational dynamic, you talked about not unloading with, with anger. And, and what are some other sort of pro tips for you know, engaging in a way that is positive and constructive when you're, you're going into the difficult territory? Yeah. Uh, one of the, the major tools, we teach two major tools of the 10 we teach. One is what we call power questions. And power questions are questions that are Pareto-based, you know, the 80-20 rule, the 20% of the information that gives you 80% of the value. And they're also designed to go for root cause. Uh, To be most effective in your work, to to add value, to grow in your position, to grow in your power as a leader, you want to be able to do root cause analysis, and you want to ask value-added questions that are powerful. And so, uh, for example, uh, you'd say, this is an example of, do you, do you like working here? Terrible question. Yes or no. What do you like about working here? Better question, but still not very valuable. A power question. What's the one thing you like most about working here? 
So if I'm an employee, I go to my boss and I say, hey, boss, what's the one thing I'm doing you most appreciate, want to make sure I keep on doing? Now, what's the one thing I could change would make the biggest positive difference in my performance in, in this team? And then a bonus power question, boss, what's the one thing I could do to either take something off your plate or to help you and this team be more successful? By asking those three powerful questions, you gather information from your supervisor, from your peers, from your family. Go home. You're really brave. Go home and ask your spouse, hey, sweetheart, what's the one thing I'm doing you most appreciate in our marriage that you want me to make sure I keep on doing? What's the one thing I could change would make the biggest difference? How, what could I do to help you feel more loved and supported in this relationship? And then ask follow-up questions to uncover and go for a root cause. You hit a root cause, you take care of a dozen symptoms. And uh, poor employee morale, uh, dropping profits, angry customers, poor quality, uh, lack of performance, uh, slow decision-making, those are symptoms. They're not root causes. Poor teamwork, those are symptoms. What's the root cause? So being able to ask powerful questions. And then the second tool that goes with that is, is highly interactive listening, where you follow up on what you've heard. You ask follow-up questions. You reflect to show that the, the person that you've heard them. You check to make sure you really heard them well. There's a, a wonderful quote. I can't remember who it's from, but I love it. It's like the biggest problem with communication is the perception that it has occurred. Because we all hear what we want to hear. So that courage to be confronted is the courage to listen very carefully, interactively, and ask powerful questions. Those two skills alone can transform your perception of you in the workplace because many people are not open to feedback, especially corrective feedback. Many people don't ask for it. And when you show that you're willing to ask for the good as well as the not so good, you're willing to ask for how you can step up and be better and you show that you're listening and you get into an interactive conversation, your value-added, the perception of you as a value-added employee, as a value-added leader, just really goes up tremendously. Now, we talked about the power questions that, that sort of really hit the 80-20 goodness and, and surface it. And then what do some of those follow-ups sound like to get to root cause? Yeah, so let's say I, I say to you, Pete, uh, what's the one thing I could do that would make the biggest positive difference in our working relationship? You say, well, Dusty, if you would start being more proactive, instead of waiting for me to give you an assignment, look and see what you think needs to happen with our key customers and come to me with some ideas. Don't wait for me to tell you and say, okay, so can you give me an example of, uh, of a time you saw me waiting to be told when you think I, I could have been proactive? And you go, yeah, with uh, two weeks ago with... Uh, uh, Mr. Jones, when he called in and there was an issue, and you'd gotten an email three weeks before that, but I got on the call and I talked to him, and as I talked to him, I realized there were some things we could do to solve it. And when I came to you to ask about it, you had several good ideas. Why didn't you get on the phone and call him three weeks before, after that email, to have the conversation with him and come up with the ideas? I go, oh yeah, okay, that that's great. So. What would be a question that I could ask of him if I get another email, I see emails like that? What would be some of the questions that you'd want to see me ask if I could ask only two questions? What would be the best questions from your perspective, from a strategic perspective, Pete? So, well, the one question I want you to ask is, what's the one thing we're doing that makes us most value added to you? And what's the one thing we could add or do different 
that would make us even more value added to your customer? Those are great questions. Yeah. And I'd like you to start asking those of all of our key customers. And I'd like you to start asking that of your teammates. And I'd like you to start recording that. And about once every four or five weeks, Dusty, I'd really like it if you'd come in and you'd give me a download on what you're hearing and what the themes are. That's where you start being more strategic and proactive. And I go, oh, that's great, Pete. Thank you. So right there, you did some coaching and guidance, but I initiated it by asking the follow-up questions and being willing to listen and ask for more guides. Excellent. Thank you. Well, next up, you've got uh, the courage to learn and grow. How's this go? Well, that's a, that's a big one. Uh, Chris Argyris uh, at Yale University, a psychologist, wrote a, a little book which talked, why is it that really smart, successful people uh, start to fail? It's because they become blinded by their past success. They, become, uh, they begin to suffer from something my old boss, Dr. James Noble Farr, called hardening of the categories. <laughs> their categories get harder uh, as they experience success, and they get blinded by that success, and they stop learning and growing. The courage to learn and grow is the willingness to step into ambiguity and the unknown. And most people don't like ambiguity. They don't like uncertainty. And yet, when you start something new, when you're really going down into new territory, it's going to be uncertain. It's going to be ambiguous. There's going to be a lot of fog. And you have to be willing to navigate through the fog. That's one part. The second piece is, and this is true for a lot of very successful people who start to limit themselves, is you have to give up the addiction to being right. There are two pieces to the courage to learn or grow. The willingness to step into ambiguity, the unknown, feel, move through the fear. And the second is to give up any addiction or need to be right. I would rather win. I'd rather find a better way than insist on being right. Because being right means I'm locked into a cognitive trap. I'm trapped in my old ways and patterns of thinking. It's what my dad would call being an amateur leader as opposed to a real pro. Okay, thank you. And so then next up, we got the courage to be vulnerable. Yep. And I actually add the words to love. I got the courage to, to put that in there. My, the publisher uh, of the book, the hardback cover of Seven Acts of Courage, was Executive Excellence. And my publisher wanted me to, me to take out the courage to be vulnerable. He said, eh, the executives won't want that. That's not good. But it, <laughs> I insisted. And, and in 19, 1998, the hardcover of Seven Acts came out. And I had the courage to be vulnerable to love. And uh, it's turned out to be one of the most powerful concepts. And uh, in fact, Brene Brown did a TED Talk that's gone viral and has millions of views now. Uh, and she's talking about vulnerability and the power of vulnerability. Well, uh, I've been talking about since 1998. For me, the courage to be vulnerable is the willingness to be open. And I actually got that term from Max Dupree. He wrote a little book called Leadership is an Art. And he was the chairman and CEO of the Herman Miller Corporation for 20 years. They were 456th in total sales in the Fortune 500, but number 12 in total return to investors. And in his book, he said, first and foremost, a leader must be willing to be vulnerable to the strengths, talents, and wild ideas of the people around him. And I was so inspired by that. And I realized that that's exactly what I had to do with my dad to transform myself. And it's one of the few things that we Americans have really taught. We're taught to be tough and strong and independent. And, you know, being vulnerable is weak. Well, being vulnerable takes real strength. And it means being open to raise my hand and say, I don't know, to ask for help, to be willing to, to be open to new ideas and inputs. In fact, 
there can be no real innovation and true passion and creativity until there is the courage to be vulnerable in the corporate ranks, in the C-suites, and in the teams, in organizations. Okay. All right. So, so when you say to love, what does that really mean in, in that context? Well, in a, in a business context, it means the, the courage to really care. I worked for a boss who was very opinionated, uh, very stubborn. Uh, he was the first founder of the Center for Creative Leadership, uh, Dr. James Noble Farr. He was the head of graduate studies at Columbia University. Brilliant man, a pioneer uh, in leadership thinking. And he was always right. Meant all of us were always wrong. Had uh, being vulnerable and open to him was to admit that I really cared about him. I didn't like him sometimes, but I really did care about him. And I cared very much about our customers. And I would call that love. But in, in business, I think it's showing that you care, that you respect, that you really value other people. And the funny thing is, Pete, I find that uh, I was a marriage and family therapist many, many years ago in private practice. I found that many, many men and not more than a few women have a fear of being vulnerable, of being hurt. And so they block the love and they create the very thing they fear most, which is feeling lonely, isolated, and ultimately leaving or being left. So the courage to be vulnerable to love is vitally important in a relationship. It's vitally important in business. And it's around that respect, that caring, that sense of letting people know, I need you. I can't get it done without you. Well, and I'm curious to hear how did that, that story evolve with, with you and, and what was his name, the founder of the Center for Creative Leadership? That was James Noble Farr, right. uh, Dr. Doc, Farr. Well, after being there for two years, he made me director of leadership development. And I worked uh, as director of leadership development for three years, created all kinds of programs. And um, finally, I realized I wanted to go off and create my own business. I went to Jim and I said, Jim, you know, you and I struggle all the time. Every time a client wants something new and I'm creating something new, you and I fight and argue. And I'm actually tired. I think I can go out and do my own thing. And I want to give you plenty of notice to leave. And he appreciated that. Uh, I was also the top biller and the top creator product at the time. And uh, he said, all right, give me two months. I said, all right. And then a week later, he came and said, no, no, go ahead and go. Go ahead and go. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was afraid other people might want to leave with me, I guess. But um, I had a, a three-year non-compete, so I couldn't work with any of the clients. But fortunately, uh, uh, AT&T picked this up, and a few other clients came in uh, very quickly. And uh, it, was, it was a real risk. It was really scary. But I tripled my income within the first 15 months and was able to create things the way that our clients were asking us rather than trying to always filter it through uh, uh, thinking of a 70-year-old guy who had things his way. But Jim and I uh, I brought him out here to the farm when I, uh, and we did a Christmas party and we gave him a plaque and thanked him because he helped launch this business and I couldn't be where I am. We couldn't have had all the success without him and his teaching. And he said uh, something really nice to me. He said, you know, Dusty, he said, of all the consultants I've worked with over the years, you've done more and taken my work further than anybody else. And I really appreciate that. And he and I were planning to uh, do some things and then he died uh, from heat stroke uh, at the age of uh, he was in his early 80s. Oh, man. Yeah, but, but, but it was always that sense of respect and caring, even when I needed to leave to start my own business. And you can do things like that if you treat others with respect and dignity and you have that willingness to be vulnerable and open. That's huge. Thank you. You're and then welcome. your final piece there is the, the courage to act. What, what's behind this? The courage to act is uh, where it all comes together. And it's the seventh act for a reason. 
One of the the things that I think that you uh, do in this podcast is you help people to really be awesome in their jobs, uh, to really step up and play their game at a higher level. And so for me, wisdom in acting, there are people who have the courage to act, but they do it without really thinking. They don't do good critical thinking. They're not strategic. So they're very tactical. And there's lots of activities and they're acting on lots of activities, but not their highest and best use. So the courage to act without the dream, seeing current reality, confronting and being confronted, learning and growing and being vulnerable is not going to have as much wisdom or guidance to it. So if I act informed by those prior six acts of courage, then I can act with greater wisdom and greater strategic guidance. And I might be doing less, but I'm having a far greater impact. There is a book out now called Essentialism. Uh, we had Greg on the show. Yeah, oh, I, lo- I love essentialism. Greg's brilliant, and it's what I I, I love it because it, he, you know, uh, I like him and Daniel Pink Drive because uh, and, and Brene Brown and uh, Simon Sinek because these guys are all talking about stuff I I've been doing since 1998 in in business and they just they keep validating it, which is wonderful. But what I love about that is I always asking what's my highest and best use, looking at all the things on your plate all the things you can say yes to, all the things you're being asked to do, the vast majority of them offer minimal value. And there's some that offer tremendous value. And being able to act informed by those prior six acts of courage allows you to act in more of an essentialist way, saying, what's my highest and best use? What's tied to my dream, tied to my strengths, tied to what uh, I'm willing to address tied to the information I'm getting from listening to other people carefully and to criticism, to being vulnerable and open, to, to learning and growing and stepping into the unknown, what are the things I can do? And then reorder your priorities, reorder your goals, and let some of the goals go. What is it I should stop doing is a great question. What is it I need to start saying no to? Because every no is a strategic yes to something else. And every yes is a strategic no to something important like time with my spouse, time with my kids, time to recharge my batteries, time to write my book that I've been talking about for 15 years, et cetera, et cetera. So Greg's uh, concept and his way of looking at things, I think, is a great gift. And it's a, it's a key question. How can I be more strategic and offer greater value? And instead of being hypnotized by activity and being a good guy and always saying yes, I need to be able to say no politely, respectfully, because I'm saying yes to something more important. And do you have any thoughts when it comes to this this courage stuff? You know, it's inspiring. It it, it gets you going. Like, yeah, bring it on. At least that's how I feel. So, so thank you. It's fun. And so, do you have any tips for bringing in wisdom and prudence to ensure that you are applying this well and not in a way that could, I don't know, be be overzealous or problematic? Oh, yeah. That, well, that's a great question, by the way. And it's possible somebody could take uh, one or more of the acts of courage and go rushing off thinking, ah, oh, this is great. But they haven't really thought through the implications. So again, it's like pick your battle. So the courage to confront means being willing to tell your truth. But it doesn't mean you tell your truth all the time to all people, every situation. So you need to say, all right, is this the right situation? So an employee who confronts the senior leader in a town hall in front of other people is never going to get a good response. Even if the guy 
or gal is a great leader, they're going to feel some defensiveness. And the better confrontation or conversation is a one-on-one and done politely and respectfully. And yet some people don't get the courage up until they can attack somebody in a public setting. So I think being prudently aware of timing of what am I trying to accomplish? Because you can win a battle but lose the war. I want to think long-term. What do I want to create? How do I want to be seen as value-added? What are the ways I need to begin to offer my truth? And let me stage it, because I may not be able to tell all my truth all at once, but what's the first phase? What's the next phase? How do I see if people are willing to really hear me? How can I position this? And then also in listening, uh, people might have three or four things they're critical of, and I might, and I'd say, Pete, of these three or four things that you're talking about, what's the one thing, if I could only do one of these, that would make the biggest positive difference? And you say, well, this one, because you know. And then I know what I need to work on. And then I can ask follow-up questions about that one and why it matters and what, what difference it would make and how we would know, how you would know, how I would know that I was actually making the difference. That then unpacks it. That's that interactive listening with power questions built in. That means I'm being prudent. I'm doing it with wisdom and information. Because to act without information, to act without guidance, to act without a plan, to act without asking for input and insight and corrective feedback is usually a recipe for disaster. Gotcha. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, Dusty, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Gosh, I would just say this, that I love the idea of helping people be really terrific in their workplace, being awesome at their jobs, which is which, which really drew me to you, Pete. And what I would say is that I think the essence of it is how do we help liberate the purpose, the passion, and the power of those around us? And if I can help people focus on their fundamental why, going to Simon Sinek's talk, if we can focus on the purpose here, the why, if we then look at how the why informs what we do and how we do it, we're going to be much more effective. Now we focus on purpose. What is it that really turns you on? What is it that really is going to excite you? What's really going to make a difference? What is it, where, are you, where are you most passionate? And now, together, focused on, in a purposeful way on our why or what, and doing that which gives us uh, the greatest lift, we're going to really liberate our power collectively. There's a term that I coined a number of years ago. I call it the effective intelligence of an organization. And one of the things we focus on is multiplying the effective intelligence of an organization by getting people to focus on these fundamentals and then giving them tools to help them move forward in a more powerful way. So I would say, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if you can focus on the purpose, if you can then find where the passion lies and how to begin to liberate that. My dad had a great quote. He said, son, any damn fool can tell you you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. The trick is to get the horse thirsty then you can't stop it from drinking. So what makes someone thirsty? Do you know? What kind of questions do you need to ask to figure that out? And then how can we work together in the most powerful way? So liberating purpose, passion, and power, I think is a key. Beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, my favorite quote right now is one by Einstein, Albert Einstein. And it goes like this. He says, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who believe everything is a miracle and those who believe nothing is. I'm the kind of person, Pete, who believes everything is a miracle. The fact that we exist, that we're alive, 
the fact that we can see, that we can hear, the fact that I can have this conversation with you on this mysterious technology, <laughs> my children, uh, the love of my wife, my family, beautiful trees here in the forest around me, everything is a miracle. And I think that when we believe everything is a miracle, we're open to possibility. We're open to finding our best self. We're able to find more and more and continue to grow and discover. If I believe nothing is a miracle, it's all transactional. It's all just a series of transactions. You live, you work, you die. And I think it's the real issue is how deeply have you loved? How fully have you lived? How completely have you been your best self? Beautiful. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Oh, gosh. Well, Google just released its research on teams. They, they, you know, Google hired really smart, bright people, and they put these teams together, and uh, they had some teams that were outperforming other teams consistently. And they were trying to figure out what the difference was. And they, they, went, they looked at over 200 factors. And finally, and this is on the Google site, and it was, uh, it's been listed uh, in several other sites too. Apple News had it. But basically, they discovered that when they started looking at the research, there were five factors that make for great teams. But the number one factor that outweighed everything else was a sense of psychological safety. And if you think about it, in good to great, they were talking about that organizations that went from good to great engaged in vigorous intellectual debate that was not personalized, where you have the type five leader who's not egotistical, but really looks out at the world in terms of what he or she can contribute to the world and how he or she can engage others as opposed to how everything can make him or her look better. And so vigorous intellectual debate requires a sense of psychological safety. If I feel that I'm going to be ridiculed, made fun of, punished for offering a crazy idea or offering a criticism or putting an idea out there or, or, or putting something half-baked or, or exploring something that I'm not so sure of, I'm not going to do it. And so you have people holding back, not sharing ideas. You have people not engaging in vigorous intellectual debate, so you don't come up with the best answers. So that sense of psychological safety and then structure and then a sense of effectiveness uh, and feeling valued, those all come in. But the number one factor is psychological safety. I really love that study. Years ago, Becky Langford, who worked at AT&T in PR, uh, told me, she said, Dusty, you should, you should let everybody know that you create a sense of safe space for people. I said, nah, it's too touchy-feely. You know, it's going to scare people. This is back in 1990. But actually, I think if I'd done that, the business would probably be 10 times bigger because that's really the key. When we walk in to do a training, we walk in to do consulting or coaching, if we can't create psychological safety, we're wasting our time. And if you don't have a sense of psychological safety on your team and your organization, you're never going to be great. You might be good, but you'll never be great. And how about a favorite book? Oh, well, I love, I would say Daniel Pink's Drive. Daniel Pink, really, uh, when I was reading his book, I had tears in my eyes because he was talking about all the research. He, he did a, a look at it the last 30 years of research, and he said, look, most managers and leaders in corporations are still using the understanding of the 1940s and 1950s. They haven't caught up to what modern research. They're still using extrinsic motivators, the carrot and the stick. Do this, you get this reward. Don't do this, you get punished. And that only works if you're making widgets. But when you need complex intellectual tasks and innovation, you need to have intrinsic motivators. And he identified the three big 
intrinsic motivators in the first half of the book, and the second half is how to actually use them, which is a sense of purpose, being part of something greater, which I get to contribute to. That's intrinsically motivating. A sense of autonomy, some say-so in my work week, in my work month, my work year. So I have some say-so and some freedom there. And a sense of personal mastery, that working here, I get to grow and develop. And I love that. And it just gave more intellectual firepower to the work we do. And it also just made sense in terms of what I've felt and known since 1990 in, in writing my own books and, and my own material. And then the other book I really like is The Heart's Code by Dr. Paul Pearsall. And Pearsall is a uh, psychologist who works with heart transplant surgeons and cardiologists. And he said that in all of his research and all of his work, that he's come to realize that the heart actually carries memories. And in heart transplant cases, people's personalities change. And some of the characteristics of the heart uh, giver, the donor, is shows up in the recipient. And he tells about five or six amazing stories in the book. And I, I was in tears throughout that book because I've always said, look, the essence of being a great leader is it comes from the tone and quality of your heart. And uh, he just really brought that to bear when he talked about that uh, from his own experience and from his own work as a, uh, uh, we're working with physicians and heart transplants uh, and heart transplant recipients. And so those are two books I really recommend, The Heart's Code, Dr. Paul Pearsall, and, and Drive by Daniel Pink. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite habit? Oh, uh, put first things first. <laughs> Stephen Covey's Seven Habits. I love put first things first. Know what matters most and make sure you do that first. Make sure you put that first. What I see so many people do and uh, is we will put first things last and we let tr the trivial few overwhelm us, uh, the trivial many overwhelm us and the important few get lost. So that goes back to Greg's book on essentialism. Let's focus on what really matters most. Put first things first. Let's focus on the essentials. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and, and get quoted back to you frequently? Yeah. Uh, when I was a young psychotherapist, uh, I came to a realization after about three years of private practice um, that I've really carried over into the consulting work in, in our organization. And it's simply this. No one can do it for you. And you can't do it alone. No one can do it for you. You've got to have the courage to step up and have the dream and see the current reality and confront and be confronted and learn and grow and be vulnerable and, and open and to then take action. No one can do that for you. And you can't do it by yourself. You can't go off in a cave and make everything right. It's through interaction. It's through learning. It's through listening. It's through help. It's through conflict and confrontation, through criticism, through appreciation, through recognition. It's the interactive nature of us human beings with each other at our best. And knowing that the intent is to help us be our best, that really helps. So I would say this, Pete, no one can do it for you, and you can't do it by yourself. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them to? We actually have two websites. The business-to-business -business website for corporations and senior leaders and so forth is uh, stobleadership.com, www.stob, S-T-A-U-B, stobleadership.com. And that links to a YouTube channel. There are like 30 YouTube videos of me. There is a, uh, there's a list of the books and the materials and also the team that works with me is listed all there. The new website we started last year is for the general public. It's for teachers, students, it's for everybody. 
and it's called uh, www.theactsofcourage.com, theactsofcourage.com. There are short videos explaining each act of courage with a story about each act. There are interviews with uh, executives and psychologists and lead business leaders and entrepreneurs. There are many articles on there. I've written articles, interviews I've had with people. So I'd recommend people take a look at both of those websites. And then, of course, I have a TED talk, a TEDx talk, uh, uh, Developing the Cardiovascular System of the Soul, uh, which is also uh, people can pick up. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I, I, would, I would say the, the final challenge I'd say is, do you have the courage to be your best self, to claim your deepest dream, and to face the thing you least want to face? Because it's the act of courage that you've least developed that will be your Achilles heel that will keep you limping through life. Okay. Well, Dusty, thank you so much for, for going deep into this good stuff. It's been inspiring and, and a lot of fun. And I just wish you all the best and all you're up to. Thank you, Pete. And thank you for the great work you're doing. And if I can ever be of any help as you work on helping people be awesome at work, just let me know. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> it was a great interview. Thank you. I love Dusty's take on how sometimes being nice isn't nice and the encouragement to be courageous and how that could make just a, a world of difference. So I you're making any little excuses or shying away from a courageous question or confrontation or conversation, I hope you've found a little extra oomph to go there and to go there wisely. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links as we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep329. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. If you do so, you'll hear from our next guest. It is Nir Ayal, and he is talking about how do we get hooked our attention to devices and technology and how can we be more engaging in trying to hook other people's attention to what we're creating and to protect your attention wisely and deploy it as you wish. So much good stuff. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 